0: Today's passage is Romans chapter one, verses one to seven. This passage can be found on page seven ninety-five of the Pew Bible. Hear now the word the word of the Lord which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible and inerrant. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you are also among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ this is the word of god God. children three to six can be dismissed
1: Well, good morning. Before we get into the teaching of the Word, if you would, bow with me and let's pray. Father, it is your Word that your people need and that I need. I pray that you would take this marvelous, Work this letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul, and you would teach us wonderful things about you, about ourselves, and the matchless grace to be found in Christ. Would you help me now? Would you help our people, the members at Chattahoochee, to engage our minds, our hearts, our will, and our soul? that we might worship you well. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin Romans today. And maybe you too have found salvation to be sometimes a bit mystifying, confusing, hard to really wrap your head around. Maybe you've wondered, if I'm really saved, why don't I feel fully free? Why do I still struggle with sinful desires and actions? Our study of Romans should help answer some of these deeper questions about life and about faith and about God who has called us up into this relationship with Himself. As we study Romans, I think many of us will become much, much more free. Before we study and get into the understanding, there's a few things about sin that I want to highlight. There is a uh, a penalty for sin, there is a um, power that sin has, and there's a presence that sin has. We're going to look at that in just in just a moment. Our view of God, though, hopefully in this study of Romans, will move from maybe the equivalent I grew up in Woodstock, not too far from Kennesaw Mountain, but about a thousand miles. From where James and Joy live. Um, We went out to their home and I just kept driving and driving and driving. Finally I said I think we're in Chattanooga. So they are true saints to be here. Um, But often I would look at Kennesaw Mountain and you know it's not a huge mountain. Um, And I think that our view of Kennesaw Mountain sometimes is like our view of God. It's just not that big. When in reality, we should be mesmerized by the magnitude and the beauty of the snow-covered, capped mountains of the Matterhorn Mountain in the Swiss Alps. Instead of it being Kennesaw Mountain. The Matterhorn Mountain is covered in snow and it is majestic and is thousands of feet high. I think Romans has the potential to move or to shift our understanding of God from Kennesaw to the Matterhorn. You see, our freedom from sin as a believer is certain, but it is not sudden. The women have been studying and uh, going through a, a Genesis study with a lady by the name of Jen Wilkins. Mm-hmm. Jen Wilkins said these things as it relates to our topic. And I think there is a slide. It says, so we will rest more confidently in our justification. Romans is written so that we can rest more confidently in our justification, meaning we have been justified before God and we can rest in that, but also so that we will labor more diligently in our sanctification. And we're going to talk about justification and sanctification, and Romans is going to lead us to places perhaps you haven't been before. And we will hope more expectantly in our glorification. Meaning, one day we will be without sin. And so she says it this way. Be assured of your justification. It was. One day you were freed fully from the penalty of sin. So what I'm saying is, is if you are a follower of Christ and you have been justified, it was. It was. Meaning, you have been freely freely and fully justified before God. And then also, be patient with your sanctification. It is, it is. Each day you are being freed increasingly from the power of sin. Romans will teach us this. And then finally, be eager for your glorification. It is to come. One day you will be freed finally from the presence of sin. We can relate and we do relate. And often I struggle myself. We did the illustration where if Hitler is over here, maybe the most sinful person in the world, and Jesus is over here, the most holy person in the world, because of the presence of sin in my life, I relate more to this and I am closer more to this than I am to that and therefore I question things in my mind that I probably shouldn't question because sin is still present and it haunts me and it makes me doubt things like the question of do good people really go to hell? There are glorious truths, glorious truths in Romans. Our hearts and minds should soar like a majestic eagle surveying the ground below. Higher and higher, Paul expounds the mysteries of the wonderful truths of the gospel. And as C.S. Lewis says in our study of Romans, we will go further up and further in. We will go further up and further in. Romans is, for me, like climbing Mount Everest. I am intimidated by the wealth of profound and wonderful truths in this letter from the Apostle Paul. I fear I may fall or stumble in my understanding of some of these truths, even as the pastor I'm tempted, I'm tempted to try to climb something a little more equal to the task of Kennesaw Mountain, not Matterhorn. And maybe that would be like the book of Job, or Jude, or not Job, Job would be hard. Jude, Jude is one chapter, very small, small mountain. Romans reaches to the heights of untold explanation. Peter himself said it this way in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Listen to what Peter says about Paul's writing. And I have to believe he's talking a little bit about Romans. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. This is Peter, the apostle, saying that about Paul, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Romans 9, chapter 9, might be the, considered the summit of the mountain of Romans. It will take great skill and grace to climb the slippery, steep slopes and to understand the God of Romans 9. Like one who's been trained to climb Mount Everest itself, when we arrive, we will declare it was worth the climb. The heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, and if you don't get anything else, get this about Romans. The heartbeat of his letter to the Roman Christians is righteousness through justification by faith. Paul is trying to tell the Roman Christians righteousness comes through justification by faith. How else could it come? Well, it could come by works. And Paul is saying, no, not by works, but justification comes by faith. Many of the greatest Christian minds and leaders have considered the letter to the Romans the most important theological work ever written. Martin Luther said it this way, it was the most important part of the New Testament and that its central premise, justification by faith alone, was the doctrine on which the church rises or falls. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, on it rests the church, whether it will rise or fall. It was Romans 1, 16 and 17. Look with me there, if you would, in your Bibles. I invite you to turn. We're not going to look at this passage today, but I do think this passage is uh, very central to the whole book or the whole letter of Romans. In Romans 1, 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and here's the key phrase, The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, what did this mean? Luther had spent hours, and I mean hours, on his knees and in confession, trying to justify himself before God. He was a monk. And he would go in and another priest would be there with him and he would get on his knees and literally for hours he would confess his sins. Every motive, every wrong thought, he would just go on and on and on until finally the one listening would say, Martin, that's enough. You're killing me. Martin Luther also quickly saw the hypocrisy in the church people at that time the 1500s people were being taught they could buy salvation for their loved ones that when your loved one died they would go to a place called purgatory and you could buy them out of purgatory what it really was was it was the priest way at the time of getting more money to build their cathedrals no one obviously said that But Johann Tetzel is most famous for his speech as he would go around into the villages and he would preach this sermon. He was a Dominican preacher, and he was the main one accused of selling indulgences. And he would, uh, the the couplet that is attributed to him, As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And on and on he would go, teaching his foolishness. This book and those verses unlock the clear path that salvation was by faith alone, not by any financial gain. And that he and every other person needed to hear the gospel of Christ the substitutionary death on our behalf was our only hope to avoid the wrath of god which paul writes and if you go home and i would encourage you to do this read for next week and this is what i would encourage you to read the section from romans 1:18 all the way to romans 3:20 from romans 1:18 to romans 3:20 in that section of scripture, what Paul is writing is how the wrath of God is going to come. That's the whole, the, all of it is about the wrath of God to come. So, it was the study of this book that launched the Protestant Reformation. That changed all of history. Samuel Coolidge, speaking for many, said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. John Knox said, It is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. Romans is a book about the gospel. It is the most important clear and in-depth look at the gospel in all of Scripture. But, and here's a big twist, and I hope you get this, because in some ways it's subtle. The book is written to Christians about the gospel. It's not written to non-Christians about the gospel. You see, Look at Romans 1-7. In Romans 1-7, Paul says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to the saints. He's writing to the Christian. And you know what he writes about? Over 400 verses about how the gospel applies to you as a follower of Christ you see the gospel is not just a diving board to get into the pool of salvation the gospel is the pool it's not a diving board it's the pool and if we learn if you and I as followers of Christ learn to swim in the waters of the gospel, you will be set free and find peace in places in your life and in your soul that you never imagined possible. By swimming in the waters of the gospel, the realities of God and his power toward those who believe, if you can remember that from Ephesians 1 in the benediction, will become real to you instead of uh, it's just what I hear in church. You see, our minds and our hearts and our souls desperately need to marinate in the gospel. We need to chew on it. We need to meditate on the gospel. We need a million different circumstances in our lives are coming and screaming at us and it's in those circumstances that we need to pull the gospel and we need to push the gospel down into our hearts and into our souls and make application but the difference between a mature follower of Christ and an immature follower of Christ is the immature follower of Christ thinks the gospel Is how you get into the kingdom. And the mature follower of Christ knows that the gospel is their breath. It is the air that they breathe. And that they've learned how it applies in all circumstances of life. And as they apply the gospel to different circumstances in their life, they find themselves being more free and more free like an eagle soaring higher and higher and higher that's why Paul wrote Romans It's for the Christians to understand the gospel at the deepest levels Paul has a very practical problem as well though he's trying to address it in the book of Romans and the practical problem is this the 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 division that has happened between the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman church you see in the original church in Rome it consisted of both Jews and Gentiles and so there were already issues because the Jews from the Old Testament had all of these dietary laws and all of these things going on that the Gentiles and Paul was telling them that they didn't necessarily have to fulfill because those things had already been fulfilled in Jesus the new covenant but the Jews couldn't let that go because that had been thousands of years for them obeying these rules and laws and so there was All of this conflict. But then, Claudius, the emperor, he orders all the Jews to leave Rome. And so, all the Jews, including the Christians, everybody is pushed out of Rome. And for five years, it's just the Gentile Christians in Rome. So, they set up their own systems, and they have everything going the way that they want. But then, they're allowed to come back. And it is at this point that we get the letter from Paul to the Romans. Because when the Jews come back to Rome, there begins to be all this frustration between the two groups of people. And the letter has a specific reason that Paul writes. And he gets into some of the different reasons and what's splitting the Jews and what's splitting the Gentiles And what's keeping them from loving each other in Christ? Let's start. We're just going to look at these first seven verses. That was an intro that I see as at least half, maybe more, of what I'm going to say. Maybe more than half. But look at Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So, Paul is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That is, he is bought, owned, and ruled by Christ. Bought, owned, and ruled by Christ. Now, here's the the application point. If you are a follower of Christ, we could call you, and it would be appropriate a saint. I can't call you an apostle. You're not an apostle. Paul's an apostle. You had to know Christ personally or or be in his presence to be a true apostle. But you are a saint. A follower of Christ is a saint. And it is true of you that if you are his, you are bought, owned, and ruled by Christ. Does your life reflect being bought, owned, and ruled by Christ? He lives to please God. And unless we get the wrong idea, though, Christ somehow being dependent on Paul's initiative and Paul's slave labor or bond labor, we should notice Romans 15, 18. In Romans 15, 18, it says, Paul depends on Christ for all that Paul himself does in the service of Christ. You can look there. This is what... Romans 15, 18 says, it's Paul writing, he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except that Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In other words, this is what Paul's saying. Paul serves Christ in the power that Christ serves Paul. If we serve Christ Christ, and we serve him truly, we serve him in the power that he provides. Now, I know that's mysterious, but Paul is saying, I don't serve by myself. I serve because I have the power of Christ in me. That is how we get free in sanctification from the penalty of sin. Now, it also says, called as an apostle. So, in our text, it says Paul was called as an apostle, Um, a bondservant of Christ, but also an apostle. He's not only owned and ruled, he is also called. We're not apostles. Paul is. Paul's significance is not first and primarily what he has done, but what has been done to him he has been bought and owned and has been called and has been set apart so someone else is the primary actor here not paul someone else is the primary actor we're dealing with in this letter not merely with the work of a man but with the work of god in a man it's not paul saying It's not about me, it's about God working through me as an apostle. And that is why he has called me, and I am going to the Gentiles. And the same could be true for every believer. Not that we're apostles, but that God has called you. He is at work in you. And it says clearly in the scriptures, he has works for you to do. And here's a test for every believer. Are you walking in the works that he has called you to do? Doesn't matter what age you are. If you are a follower of him, you can't age out of this. Matter of fact, my prayer for many of you that I know are struggling with health issues and you can't do some of the things you used to could do it's just a reality it's your age but there's one thing that i think you can still do and i pray that you do and that is you can pray you may not be able to do anything with your body anymore but you can pray you can pray for god's kingdom to come you can pray for our church you can pray that people will. That are now lost will be saved. You can you can pray for your family. You can pray for your neighbors. Let's look at Romans one two. It says he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures that he would send Paul as an apostle. And he would reach these people, the Gentiles. How and where do we see this? From our very last study, in Genesis 3.15, we said that was the very first evangelistic statement. In Genesis 3.15, it says, "...I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." He's talking about Jesus and Satan. It's a prophecy that God is going to send a Messiah all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis. So fast forward, here we are in Romans, and Paul is saying he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scripture. Where else might he have promised? Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. Does this sound familiar? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I just think that's amazing. Just stop for just a minute. Everything in our culture is about beauty. I mean, if you watch the Super Bowl tonight, I guarantee you, most every commercial you're going to see are beautiful people. Let's face it, most of us are not beautiful people. You know, and especially as we age, I mean, it just gets worse and worse, you know? And, uh, and I'm not talking about you, if you're aging, I'm talking about me. I mean, I, I look at the mirror, thank you, Jeremy. I look at the mirror and I say, man, you are uglier than you've ever been. Well, here's the thing. Things just aren't what they seem. Even our Messiah, who he's God, he could have been the most beautiful human being to ever walk the planet. But he did not choose that. And I think it's because he chose to identify with us. And it says he had no beauty that they should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and he was esteemed and they esteemed him not. Wow. So, the prophets talked about him. Now he's here in Romans. Let's look at Romans 1, 3 through 4. It says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, take that phrase, concerning his son. You see right there at the very top. Concerning his son. The second thing he says about the gospel, the second thing Paul says about the gospel of God is that it concerns his son. It concerns his son. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerns his son. The gospel of God has to do with the son of God in many and profound ways. So Paul is putting a weight, a weightiness on the gospel of God by saying, first, he promised it and he planned it long ago, but more importantly, his divine son is at the center of it at the center of it all is this infinite divinity. My son, a holy man, a holy God. Both God and man will come together to be a substitute for your sin. And so he's saying it's concerning his son. And then This is gonna get challenging, it's the closing, it's gonna take a few minutes to explain it. Some of you are gonna leave here scratching your head, going, I don't know if I agree with him on that, that's really challenging, I don't know what that means. All of those things are gonna happen, because remember, we're climbing Mount Everest, and the altitude might, and the air might get thin, and we might miss a step on our way up this mountain. Some of these things are hard to understand, but listen. Romans 1, 5 through 7. Let's read it together. Through whom we have received grace, this is Paul, and apostleship. So he's received apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So not just Jews, but Gentiles. And if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's the way that works. Including, and he's talking to the Roman Christians. He says, including you who are called, and that's the key word, called to belong to Jesus Christ. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. And again, he says, called to to be saints. You're loved by God and you're called to be saints. Then he says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Paul is saying, "We have received a grace that leads for him to being an apostle, an apostle to bring about faith for the nations." But then he's saying something else. And it is this something else that I want you to hear. He says this includes those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. They are loved by God and called to be saints. All right. This is where the twist happens. Theologians throughout the centuries have said these are at least there are at least two types of calls. From God to man, I'm going to show them to you in the Scripture. There is such a thing as a general call. If you think about it for just a moment, John 3:16. I still can see Tim Tebow wearing his eye black, and it says John 3:16. And the announcers go, "Look at there! He's a Christian. He's got John 3:16." Most of y'all know that that is, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whoever would believe in Him." should not perish but have eternal life. Don't hear me wrong. I believe that statement with all my heart. It is Bible. That is Bible. I believe it. Whoever would call on the name of the Lord should be saved, will be saved. That's the general call that God puts out to all men and all peoples throughout all time. But then there is such a thing as an effectual, an effectual call Effectual, I think I have a definition, Michael. Successful in producing a desired or intended result. It is effective. It is effective. There's a general call and there's an effectual call. What our text is talking about is an effectual call. Those he called... Belong to Jesus Christ is what it says. To those all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. If you use your brain a little bit, then it must be that there are some that are not called in this same way. You see? Now, to illustrate this most pointedly, look with me at Matthew 22 and this will be important for you to understand this as I'm talking about a general call and an effectual call Matthew 22 we're gonna read the parable together because in this parable holds I think the key to understanding the general and the effectual call this is the parable of the wedding feast it is in Matthew 22 Verses 1 through 14. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Read with me. I'm reading from the ESV, so your version may be a little bit different, but probably not a lot. And again, Jesus spoke to them in the parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Let me stop right here and tell you the context. Jesus is talking mostly to Jews right here. All right, if you go back and look at the context, he's speaking mostly to the Jews. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, if you just do a little bit of thinking, the king is the father, the son is Jesus. And he sent his servants, the prophets, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. They were called But they would not come. Some are called and don't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. And look at at what they did, y'all. One to his farm, another to his business, they're just, you know, they're busy with life. Second Timothy 2 says, Don't be entangled in the affairs of everyday life. They didn't go to the party. They were busy with life. They wouldn't come. They were called by the king's people. And it says in verse 5, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest, the rest of them seized his servants Treated them shamefully and killed them. You know who he's talking about right there? The prophets. They seized them, they treated them poorly, and they killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Talking about the Jews. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And and here's a kicker. But when the king came in to look at the wedding guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him head and foot and cast him, listen to where he's casting him, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then it says, Many are called, few are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. I said there's a general call and there is an effectual call. When he goes out and he sends them out, he calls them in and he makes them come. The Jews would not come. Their hearts were hard. What I'm saying is, I believe the scriptures teach that represents all of us. I wasn't coming to the feast. I wasn't coming. My heart is rebellious to my creator. But my God sent others out, and they proclaimed the gospel to me, and God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, said, You're mine, Clint you're gonna come you're gonna be at this feast whether you want to kicking and screaming or not john 644 says "Um, (laughs) no one comes to the father unless he who sent me draws him." jesus is saying that nobody comes to the father unless he who sent me draws him and when you double click which if you have a Bible software on draws the Greek word is drags no one will come to the Father unless he who sent me drags him you get the idea of almost against their will I believe that if God himself doesn't do a work you will not come but because he has elected He has predestined. He has called some of us effectually. We do come. And you know what happens in the story? Somebody is in the party that isn't supposed to be there. Talk about a party foul. And, And the king comes up, and he says, You're not supposed to be here. You don't have on wedding clothes. You know what the wedding clothes are? Romans 1.16 and 17, the righteous shall live by faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You're not covered in the blood of my son. Your sins are not forgiven by my son. You do not belong here. And so it says he is cast out. And the exact wording used in other places in the Bible for hell is the words that are used here. Unless you are covered with Christ through his effectual call, you will be cast out. That is what our text is teaching. Paul is telling them They are called, they are loved by God. And he's writing his letter for them to understand the gospel at a deeper and higher level. Further further up and further in. May Romans take us to those places. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. The realities and the truths of your word Uh, I pray that they would sink deep into our hearts, that we would recognize that you have, before the foundation of the world, called us to be yours. And for that, we are eternally grateful. God, would you send us out into the world as ambassadors. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. You have your people out there. God, would you use us to bring them into the harvest? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.